Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. So uh, this is a little bit different for me, different format. Uh, obviously, we normally don't do uh, summer classes, so this is different. And then doing the whole team teaching thing is different. And so uh, earlier, I asked uh, both Jim, who was here last week, and Elijah for some advice, and they didn't have any for me. But I asked my wife, and she said, uh, just don't try and be funny. <laughs> And I said, okay. I said, do you have any other advice? And she said, yeah. Don't try and sound too smart. Just be yourself. (laughs) So uh, one of those was true. I'll let you try and figure out which one. She also gave me grief about the uh, today's handout note. So obviously it's blank. If you want to take some notes, you are welcome to. Um, I did not provide uh, any notes. Part of that was because I was uh, at a meeting in uh, Iowa this week and just didn't have a chance to get it put together in a format that you guys would be able to use. Uh, But my plan is when we're all done, I will just uh, give Lindsay all of these notes that I am using and teaching from and then they will be available and you can just add them to that. So that's how we will do that. So uh, Jim did a phenomenal job. I got to listen to the podcast last week. So Jim did a phenomenal job of introducing the arc of the book and sort of getting your mind wrapped around what the book is all about. Uh, And I appreciate that. But I will tell you, I have been wrestling. uh, Scott asked, I'm going to say... It was probably in uh, late April at some point, asked if maybe I would be willing to do this, just kind of the, the concept, and then I think sometime in May. So it's it's been about 30 days that I've been wrestling with this. And I have a fear in uh, presenting this particular chapter, chapter 1 of Colossians, and it's not that you won't be able to apprehend the book. I, I have full faith in your ability to understand this book. Uh, it's really pretty straightforward and all that. And what I am fearful of is that we won't be able to see ourselves inside the words of this chapter. What I mean by that is we're going to read it and we're going to apply it to the Colossians or we're going to apply it to the church down the street or our neighbors or the people sitting across the table, you know, Robert, somebody like that. We're going to apply it to everybody else, but we're going to fail to turn the mirror on ourselves. And the reason that I say that, because as I have been studying, I have been struggling with the same thing. I was constantly looking at this and just framing it in the discussion of of the Colossians and and failing to say, these things apply to us too, right? That is the, the true challenge of the book. So I know Scott already prayed. I don't think we can pray too much. But the first thing I'm going to do is ask us, uh, for God's help, that we can uh, actually look at this and apply it to ourselves. So would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you um, in humility. God, we come with a certain amount of trepidation, knowing that you are a a majestic, holy God who is honorable, glorious above all else. God, our minds can't begin to comprehend who you are, and yet you have revealed yourself to us and you constantly enable us to know you, to understand you, to apprehend things about you uh, that we cannot know in and of ourselves. So Father, I pray that as we approach this book that we would be honest with you, we would be honest with ourselves. God, that we would seek to to see in our own life, uh, lives the way that we... Um, try to avoid your supremacy, the ways that we, uh, that we try to add to what you have already done, the ways that we allow culture to impact who we are and what we do. Father, I pray that you would grant your spirit that we might know, that we might understand, that we, uh, that we might be able to apply. God, we pray these things and that we might be able to bring honor and glory to you and to your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so as we get started, um, 
I want to, uh, just in reference to what I was just saying, illustrate that quickly. Um, so if you remember, I, I think uh, I was a little bit distracted when I was listening to the podcast, but uh, Jim shared that, that the church at Colossae was in a, a, a place in Asia Minor that was in a what we might call a circular district. It was a, a commerce district, and there were multiple churches within that area. And so Robert Stevens is going to give $10 to anybody that might be able <laughs> Robert's like, I am? <laughs> I work for the church, you remember? Uh, can anybody name some of those churches that were on that tra- uh, trade route in Asia Minor? Laodicea, I saw you. Hierapolis. What's that? Nope. It is a uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. We're missing a big one. We're missing it. Ephesus. Does that remind you of anything? Think about the book of Revelation. When Jesus is, is speaking to the churches of Asia Minor, and he speaks to all those churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, Ephesus, Laodicea, what's the one church that's missing? Colossae. You see, my fear is founded on the fact that is it possible that they did not survive that 40 or 50 years? We know that the city of Colossae was in decline, but maybe the church was in decline too. And when we read the book of Colossae, we think, well, there's no one thing that Paul is attacking or, or correcting like you have in the, in the book of Galatians. You foolish Galatians. You don't have that. But yet, I think there is this underlying tone in which Paul is speaking to them, and he's trying to get their attention, but he's doing it in a very gentle way, because this was not a church that he had established. It had been established basically by Jesus Christ. He's the one who had done it. What I mean is somebody else had carried the gospel there. And and so I think there is something in Paul's writings particularly in the book of uh, Colossians, and it's referenced in other places. And I just real quickly want to read this. This is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That sounds a lot like the opening to the book of Colossians. It's obviously squashed down into a very small area, a couple verses. But I think this underlying message of Paul saying, pay attention. What I have to share with you is very important. And there is a tendency within our makeup to miss it. Paul is is sharing some very deep theological truths in the book of Colossians. And we tend to focus on those, those deep theological truths and we miss the pastoral heart that Paul is speaking from. And my goal here is to try and capture that. And I hope that we will be able to do that. So basically, we have a blank page. We're going to allow uh, Paul to speak. um, And I'm going to make some comments as we go through. Uh, And and I will tell you, for me, this is difficult because those of you that have been in my classes know I like small sections. I don't like big sections. And we're trying to tackle a whole chapter here. Uh, And in a chapter, uh, the, the divisions within it has breaks. You know, just like when you write a letter, you change paragraphs in a letter, right? And your thought changes. Now, they might be linked together. So what I'm going to try and give you is an overarching link, okay, over this chapter so that you can understand it. But what I'm really going to challenge you to do is take it home, read it, and ingest it yourself. Because I believe that the Spirit of God is able to teach you through that just as capably, more more capably than myself, Elijah, or or Jim. So what we want to do is sort of uh, Jim did the big overview, and I'm going to do the chapter overview of chapter one and two. I don't know what Elijah's going to do. He'll probably salvage this whole thing. So um, the the challenge of expositional teaching is always that of context. In other words, answering the question, how does this fit into context? 
And when you approach something, you always have the, the larger context of, of the Bible. How does this thought, this, this book, whatever it is that you're reading, the passage that Mark is teaching on on a Sunday morning, how does it fit into the greater arc of everything that is in the Bible? So in reality, from eternity past to the future, right? That's what the Bible covers. And then you get down to, okay, how does this fit into the section? In our case, maybe the New Testament, uh, because we're looking at a book within the New Testament. And then how does it fit within the epistles, uh, those writings? And then how does it fit within the book? And one thing that is interesting to me, as you compare the book of Colossians to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians focuses on subjects that are grand and glorious. It's about this eternal hope, these these blessings that we have been called to and we're going to experience. And when you get to the book of Colossians, you don't get that so much. It tends to to uh, actually deal more with sort of the, the mundane, the everyday. Now, I realize in the book of Ephesians, when you get to uh, the end of the book, uh, you know, you deal with a lot of the same subject matter. Uh, and that is because good foundational doctrine will always lead us to good behavior, right? It will always lead us to a Christ-like behavior. That's why Jesus said, if you want to know if somebody is teaching you something that is positive, it is, is truthful, don't look at what they say. Look at what they do. Look at their fruit. Look at their disciples. Look at their life. And so... Um, as you think about the New Testament, and I know I'm, I'm sort of going back here, but it, it, it's to set up where we're going. Uh, as you look at the New Testament, you have books like Romans. Well, let's talk about the Bible in general. What is the overall overarching theme of the Bible? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> if you had to give me one word... For the entirety of the Bible, what word would you use? Love. Love? Okay. Restoration. Restoration. I like that one. How about the word redemption? And for those of you that have been in my class before, you'll notice the writing has improved somewhat. Uh, For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I had a series of strokes that took out my left side, and the writing has been getting progressively better. Um, I'm actually to where you, you know, like a third grade level, maybe. Uh, So let's just say that the overall arc of the, the biblical message is redemption. In other words, God creates so that he might restore, he might reconcile, he might redeem. And in doing so, it brings forth his what? Who is magnified in the story of the Scripture? Is it us? It's God, isn't it? It brings forth His glory. It manifests itself in His glory. But then when you go to a book, let's say the book of Romans, what would you say the book of Romans, the theme might be? I thought we were studying the book of Colossians. Freedom. Freedom? There is a word that is used in a very technical sense over and over and over in the book of Revel- in the book of Romans begins with the J justification and specifically it lays out for us the idea of justification by faith in Christ alone and the idea of that we use one word to describe that and I'm going to use the word grace <laughs> that does spell grace right The book of Romans teaches us about grace. We deserve nothing, Romans chapter 1. But what do we get? Chapter 5, we now have peace with God. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you get to, let's say, the book of uh, Hebrews, um, book of Revelation, book of Ephesians, and you read about this concept of uh, glory. This idea that there is this future hope that is waiting for us that is going to to bring about all of the eternal blessings of God. And we're going to live in that so that in the book of Revelation, the author of Revelation can state emphatically, now the dwelling place of God is with men. Now the question is, how do we live in 
that gap. That is the message of the book of Colossians. How do we live in the gap between the grace that God brings to us and the glory that is before us? How do we survive in this? Remember, the book of Col- or the, the city of Colossae was in decline. It was no longer needed as a trade city. Um, it's kind of like uh, railroad cities in the U.S., things like that. They, they just sort of go away because they're no longer needed with the, ad- with the invention of semi-trucks and planes and all those things. And the same thing is happening in Colossae. And so I think the fundamental question that Paul is answering or, or dealing with with the Colossian believers is how do we live in this gap? And he says the answer you already have. That's the setup. Now let's jump into the book. Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And I will tell you, uh, first of all, for those of you that haven't been in my classes, I'm using the uh, CSB, Christian Standard Bible, so that the it might sound a little different than whatever you're using. If you're using NIV, uh, ESV, any of those. But there's a lot of language in this book about the will of God or what God wants or, or what God chooses to do. That is a, a key concept that is throughout here. And, and Paul begins right from the beginning. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus because God wanted me to be. You are where you are, basically Paul's going to say, because you are where God wants you to be. You are experiencing the things that you are experiencing because God wants you to experience them. Where's Paul? When he's writing this, where is he? He's in jail. Imagine the Colossian believers. Here's, here's our hero. Here's our founder. Where is he? He's in jail. He's stuck. And so he begins with this idea of, of God's will. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters. What's fascinating to me about that verse, Paul doesn't call them the church. He says, you're saints and you're faithful brothers and sisters. You're a sacred family. That's really what that means. What is a church? It is a sacred family. It is a gathering of called out ones who are a family of families. And if you think about the whole arc of the book, and you get to chapters 3 and 4, I don't want to steal Elijah's thunder, but you get into all of these familial relationships, right? You know, husband and wife, and slave and master, and those kinds of things. And so, as Paul is introducing this, I mean, right from the beginning, one of the things that we notice about Eastern literature, there's not a whole lot of flowery speech at the beginning. It's boom, right to the point. You have to pay attention right from the beginning. And then then it goes on, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then there's this section in which Paul does, uh, in almost all of his letters, uh, in my Bible it's labeled the Thanksgiving. Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the section where Paul says, I'm going to tell you something that I observe as your spiritual father about you. Okay, He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it is among you, has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has told you about your love in the Spirit and has told us about your love in the Spirit. Mark Christian says that there are three things that Paul always grades a church on. What are they? He he may or may not listen to this, so you better come up with this. Does anybody remember what they are? It's three words. I heard it. Faith, hope, and love. Paul uses that here. Did you catch that? Um, in verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. But what I want you to notice is the construction that Paul uses. He says, we've heard about your faith. I'm just going to use 
uh, an F, and we've heard about your love for all the saints. It's your faith in Christ and your love for everyone. But what is your faith and love based on? Or why do you have faith and love? It is because of the hope that you have. I would tell you, I would underline that if I were you. He he says, it is because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Everything is based upon this concept of hope. Remember that idea of how do we live in the gospel gap? How do we live in that that difference between grace and glory? I love the the statement. I'm going to paraphrase what the Puritans said. But they would say this, glory is grace in its fullness, and grace is glory in its beginning. There is no distinction between those two things. They are just one and the same. One is in its infancy, and one is in its fullness. And so Paul is saying, I've heard about your faith, I've heard about your love, and it's all based on this hope that you have. This idea that there is something greater. And then he tells them, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And so I want us to focus as we go through here on this idea of the hope of the gospel, really gospel hope. And I will tell you, if you are one that likes an outline, I I did actually do an outline, which I never do an outline. Uh, So we're going to look at the mystery of gospel hope, the plan of gospel hope, and the person of gospel hope. Mystery, person, plan. Because that's really the way that this, uh, at least for me in my pea brain, that's the way this chapter sort of lays out. Paul's going to first of all share with them this this concept of the mystery. Remember what Jim said about the mystery? It's not like Agatha Christie, right? What is a mystery? Anybody pay attention last week? <laughs> what is a mystery? What is a biblical mystery? Something that is revealed over time, it is hidden for a period of time. And so this is why it's so foundational, because the essence of the gospel that the apostles preach is, hey, do you not remember all those things that God taught us in the Old Testament, that they were all pointing to this person that was going to come, that was revealing this mystery? The Passover lamb wasn't really about the Passover lamb. It wasn't about temporary atonement. It was about the finality of atonement when the lamb of God who was going to come and take away the sins of the world. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac and when he was getting ready to sacrifice. And Abraham makes that bold statement, God will provide the sacrifice. He did, right? And so the, the idea is, that, is this mystery is, is gradually being unveiled throughout history as we go along. So Paul is talking about the mystery, and he says, here's the mystery. It's hope. It's not instantaneous gratification. What was the one thing that the Israelites desired? As they went throughout their um, history as a nation. God brought them out of slavery um, and, and they went in and they conquered and they just wanted to be at the pinnacle, right? They wanted thrones. Think, think of how many times in the gospel narrative did the disciples ask Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Can I sit at your left hand? Can I sit at your right hand? The idea that they were going to, to get to this reconciliation, this, this idea of ultimate redemption. When you reign, we reign, and everybody else is our servant, right? That, that's in essence what they wanted. We want the world down here, and we want us up here. You can be a little bit above us, but we want to be awful close to you. And, and God is, is telling us, and here Paul is revealing, no, it is the hope of something that is going to come that is our anchor. And so as we uh, look at this, there, there is always two dangers that the, the church has faced over the years. One, if you look at only those things that concern knowledge, uh, that is if you focus solely on those theological truths that are shared, you end up with, and, and pardon this word, but it's an unpractical orthodoxy. It, you know, it's where you sit and you contemplate your belly button 
and whether or not Adam had one. And you know all things and you, you are very aware of all things, but you never do anything. And then the other uh, characteristic that the church can fall into is uninformed practice, where they're out doing all kinds of wonderful things. They're, they're feeding the sick and, and caring for the poor and the orphans. And somebody says, why are you doing this? Well, I don't know, because Jim said to do it. <laughs> and so there is never any offer of anything other than the temporary, other than that physical need. And so I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to marry a theological discussion that will have impact on our behavior and will therefore change the world in which we live. That's the gospel message, is it not? It is a redeemed, reconciled life that changes us, transforms us. And so he, he's sharing with them this idea of hope is something that we hold on to, but it also changes us while we hold on to it. It's not just, you know, I hope Christmas comes and we sit and wait for it. No, I hope Christmas comes and so I'm going to prepare because Christmas is coming. That's the concept that Paul is sharing here. And uh, he, he does this in such a way that he reveals it as this unknown thing that is sort of popping up, if you will. And to me, the beauty of this is he says there is a plan in which this is going to happen. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm pulling things out of the way. So just sort of tuck this idea of the mystery in the back of your head for now. Can you do that? Can you compartmentalize your brain? Just put it back there. We're going to come back to it. Remember, I don't like these big sections because that's not how Paul wrote. But we're going to do it. Uh, Somebody else told me what I was going to teach. So just tuck that back there. Paul's going to go on to the plan. But he's going to come back to the mystery. Okay? So, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. To me... For the longest time as a believer, and even as a pastor, when when I would come to these sections in Ephesians and other places where Paul would pray, I, I just it's kind of like the genealogies. I just skip right over them. Um, we miss so much when we do that. Paul drops for us the exact reason why he is writing the book in his prayer. The other thing that I want you to notice, remember, he has praised them for their faith and for their love, but he says, I'm still going to pray for you. We tend to pray for those who we think are in need. Paul says we're all in need. Pray for everyone. Pray in all circumstances. For this reason, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. One of the key concepts that Jim brought out and I had um, you know, he had shown Elijah and I what he was going to do and I asked I said, can we put this concept of walking worthy in there? Because I think that's the thrust of what Paul's getting at. He said, Jesus has done a lot of things for you. And and the question is, are you going to walk as though he has done them for you, or are you going to walk just however you want to? And, And that I remember Jim brought this up. This idea of walking worthy is not the idea that we are earning something. We're not trying to walk in a certain way so that he says, good boy, Uh, you know, like our dog. We're walking in that way because he has done something for us. It is because of the hope that we have that we walk in this way. And in this section, we have what I would tell you is the, um, the plan that Paul is laying out in, in the way that he sees Christianity working. A um, couple of key concepts. Let's see, verse uh, verse 9. He says, I'm asking of God that you be filled with the knowledge of His will. I want you to know what God's plan is. I want you to know what God's wishes are. Remember that concept of will that we ran into in verse 1? Paul said, I'm an apostle by God's will. Here it is again. I want you to know God's will. Now, when we think of God's will, we think about where does he want me to live? Where does he want me to work? Who does he want me to marry? Those are not necessarily antithetical to the will of God, but they tend to be 
purposive in nature is the theological term that we use. It means they serve a purpose. But they're not the decrees of God. They're not those eternal things that God sets forth and says, I'm going to do this. We tend to look at Christianity or salvation as plan B. God created and got screwed up and so now he had to come in and fix it. No. From all eternity, he planned this. Jesus Christ was slain from the foundations of the world as the sacrificial lamb. This was God's plan from all eternity to bring about this redemption, this reconciliation. And so here Paul is saying, I want you to know the will of God because when you know the will of God, notice the next section, verse 10, you may walk worthy of the Lord. That knowledge is going to change you. A couple things that's interesting about this. When he says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will, he said, it's not like I want you to go out and attain it. It's passive. The verb is passive here. It's going to happen to you. And the knowledge is not some secret esoteric knowledge. It is the plain knowledge that God is going to give you. But it is knowledge. It is something that you have to allow your mind to, to grasp onto so that, so that that thought can make the journey from the mind through the imagination into the heart and transform the heart. Because that's what God is really about, is transformation. He said, you're never going to be able to adapt you know, your, your behavior, but I can. And it's going to be done through this plan as you understand what the will of God is, what he is trying to accomplish. uh, You're going to be able to walk worthy. And then the question uh, that we were wrestling with as a group is, well, what does that mean to walk worthy? Well, Paul tells us. um, Verse 10, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to God. Those infinitives there, those are the words that end in I-N-G. Okay? So you have bearing, growing, being, and then finally giving. Paul says, those are the things I want you to do. Externally, as you are filled with this knowledge of the will of God, the purpose and the plan of God, it is going to transform you in such a way that your fruit, your work, is going to be good. Now, we tend to use good in a variety of ways. Um, Who has a dog? Robert's got a dog. Is it a good dog? What do you mean by... Okay, pick one. Yeah, he is. Fido? Yeah. Is he a good dog? Yes. What do you mean by good? He does what I tell him to do. He does what you tell him to do. Okay. So, do you have a good wife? (laughs) Are you still recording? (laughs) You could have heard a pin drop. Now, I'm not going to put Robert on the spot. Do you see how we use language in a different way depending on the beans that we are talking about? A dog is good because he comes when I call him, he doesn't run off to the neighbors, those kinds of things. But if we apply that to our wives, we're in big trouble, right? Somebody shake their head, group. <laughs> so when Paul is talking about good work here, he's talking about good work that is in, in line with the beam from which it is being measured by. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, Why do you call me good? He was trying to point something out with that. Why are you calling me good? Are you making a distinction between human goodness and divine goodness? If so, I can tell you. If you're just talking about human goodness, i got nothing for you. But if you're talking about divine goodness... Because remember, he says there's only one good. It's God. This idea of goodness, it's what we call the analogic use of language. It changes based on how we are communicating those, those truths and who we're actually talking about. And so here when Paul is saying, I want you to be bearing fruit in, in every good work, um, first of all, he's saying... I want it to happen for you, but it's going to happen as you link on to the knowledge, as you hold on to that hope, as you recognize that God is doing something in the gap. 
There is a purpose and a plan in the gap. Remember the gap between grace and glory. It's not just by accident. He didn't just save us and be like, what did I do with those guys I saved? Where are they? Isn't it time for them to come up here to heaven? No, there is a plan. There is a purpose in what he is doing. And so in Paul saying this, the good work that he's talking about is this righteous work. These aren't just good works. Okay? These are righteous works. Then he goes on and he says, I want you to be growing in the knowledge of God. There it is again. I want you to be growing. Um, There is a tendency in modern Christianity to love or hate knowledge. We either cling to it and... And we are, um, you know, we love it. We read books. We, uh, we talk theology with other people. We, we, we just do all those things. Or then you have the other crowd that's like, well, that's for those unspiritual people. I'm over here doing all the, you know, uh, I'm meditating. I'm uh, metaphysically getting to know the Savior. And, and so there is this sense in which um, we, we sort of waffle on whether or not knowledge is good. And I think by good reason, because knowledge has a tendency to make us think more highly of ourselves than we should. But it's key. It is crucial. But here's what I want you to grasp. What Paul says, it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. What it is what is it knowledge of? It's God. It's knowing a person. I'm an agronomist by trade right now. I know a lot of things about plants, about soils, about those kinds of things. That is vastly different category of knowing than knowing my wife. We've been married almost 30 years and there are things that I still don't know about her that I'm still learning every day. Because knowledge of a person is something that only happens in relationship when I say, I'm a knucklehead, I blew it. When I love her when she doesn't deserve to be loved, when she loves me when I don't deserve to be loved, that is true knowledge, right? And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about here. I want you to be growing in that relational knowledge of God. And then verse 11 is crucial. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Remember, the the thrust of what we're talking about here is is living in the gap between the reception of grace and our entrance into glory and and living with that frustration that we have with everyday life. Is anybody in here ever disillusioned with life around them? Do you ever turn on the evening news and like, why do people kill each other? Why is there death and destruction? You see, that, that, that gap that we live in is for a purpose. It's not just by happenstance. And I think that's what, what Paul is saying here is as we go through, we are going to grow closer and closer to God. We're going to know Him more and more. And this idea of, of the world that we live in is going to fall away. There's an old hymn. It's really not that old in, in terms of him. Uh, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what this is talking about. That as we know God more and more, and as he transforms us, the things of this world become less and less important to us. Remember, one of the things that the Colossians were guilty of doing is this concept of syncretism. Do you, do you remember Jim talking about that? Well, let's take Christianity and let's add a little bit of Jewish, Jewish mysticism. And let's add a little bit of asceticism. And let's add a little bit of whatever. And I would challenge you, this is the part, remember when I told you about my fear, Here, here's where the rubber meets the road. Can we honestly look at ourselves and, and look intently into our hearts and see those things that we seek to add to Christianity? whether it is humanistic thoughts, uh, whether it is cultural practices that we seek to incorporate in our worship, in our study, or whatever it is, or do we look at Jesus Christ and say, He is enough. He's all I need. Paul goes on. uh, He says, I want you to be giving thanks. 
You want to know if you are growing. You want to know if you're doing good works, if you're being patient. Do you give thanks? I, I, I think I've told this story in every uh, class that I've taught since then, but right after I had my strokes was a very, very dark time for me because I couldn't figure out why is this happening? What's going on? God, I, I thought you had a purpose and a plan in this. And I couldn't see purpose and plan in the suffering. And I will tell you today, I give thanks to God almost every day because of those strokes. You see, it was only when I began to know Him in the midst of that, that the suffering made sense. There are many Christians today who are walking this earth, who are struggling with those very things, the, the, the struggles, the sufferings of life, and they say, how in the world does this, how does this work? What, what's the point? The point is that we know, know Him, that we remain in Him. I told you uh, verse 11 was key. It, it's that we would be strengthened, again, this is passive, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. That's all God wants from us is stick to Remain faithful. That's all He ever wanted from the Israelites. Just keep trusting me. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. There's His will. There's His plan. God did something in us, in grace, that isn't visible, but is nonetheless true. He took us out of the evil world system and He transferred us into this kingdom that operates by His authority, His rule, His purposes, His plans. And here we are. And the problem is we sit in the midst of His kingdom and we look at the culture around us and we try and make sense of it. And you cannot make sense of the culture around you because you are now a member of the kingdom of God. Um, I want you... Somebody say something. Yep. If you don't mind. No, go ahead. C.S. Lewis kind of sums up what you're saying. And what he says is, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because He is what He is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because He already loves us, He must labor to make us lovable. Mm. Hmm. What book was that from? Uh, Problems of Pain. Say that again. Problems of Pain. C.S. Lewis, Problems of, of Pain. Paul, or well, I just made a Freudian slip. The author of Hebrews says this in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 14. Now those who say such things, uh, excuse me, Verse 13, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This hope that the gospel holds out is exactly what Hebrews 11 lays out, what C.S. Lewis talks about. It's this idea that we are looking forward to something. And here, Paul says in this section, he transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into this kingdom of the son that he loves. And that's why we struggle to make sense of it. Because we're still trying to operate from a human point of view, an earthly point of view, a created point of view. And God says, you can't do that. You have to operate from a knowledge of my thoughts, my will. So what is the will of God? It is to present uh, the person of gospel hope, which is given to us in verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. How is it that we know God? We look to Christ. This word image is the word, uh, Greek word icon. It's the idea of, a, think of a photograph. It's a, a likely representation Right? I just gave you an untruth. It is, it's the exact representation 
of who God is. Okay, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Notice, He is both the instrumental means of creation and the purpose of creation. They were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. If it were not for Jesus Christ, this world would spin into oblivion. That means even in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a tornado, in the midst of a hurricane, in the midst of cancer, in the midst of death, in the midst of destruction, He is still holding everything together. See, that's the hope that Paul wants us to cling to. That's what Paul wants us to rest in. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And then you get to verse 19. And uh, I I did a bunch of reading on, on this. is pretty fascinating. So verse 19 in the original reads like an ellipsis. And what that means is you have an opening statement and all these things under it apply to it. So I'm going to do it by just repeating the first phrase. Okay. So the way that the Colossians would have read this would be this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God was pleased through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth and things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased in all that. That's will language. That's desire language. This is what God was wanting to do. God was wanting to reconcile everything that he had created back to him to make peace. Then, then Paul says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, blameless, and before him. Here's where it gets fascinating. In reality, you can apply that, for God was pleased, to that too. God was pleased to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Have you ever thought about that in that way? It was God's greatest desire to present you in such a way that you could stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. To me, you know, Mark says it this way, that makes my tail wag. It made God happy to make me right. I don't know about you, but I'm not right in and of myself. I am not right. But it made God happy to do that. Verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. Remember what I said God's plan all along was? stick to If you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel, that you heard the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Here we get back. Paul makes that full circle all the way back to hope. We started with hope. Sorry. Started with hope. We end with hope. That's why I know this is all one section, not broken up into greater into smaller bites. It, Paul is saying, I want you to cling to that idea of hope. I want you to hold on to that. Because that hope, your hope as an anchor, allows you to develop perseverance in the midst of everything that you may encounter. And the hope that you hold on to, we haven't really defined that yet. So we better do that. What is this hope of the the gospel hope that we're talking about? Verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. It just cracks me up when Paul writes this way. I I rejoice in my sufferings. I've yet to hear a televangelist get up on stage and say, I rejoice that I lost a million dollars this week or my jet crashed or whatever. They, they just don't do it. I haven't heard Mike Smith do that either. Remember what I said about my fear? I, it's real easy to apply this to somebody else. What I struggle with is looking in the mirror. 
I rejoice in my sufferings for you and am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. That is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now here Paul's given us the plan. I have been given the opportunity to be its servant by God's commission to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. What did Paul call the Colossians at the beginning of this letter? Saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember two things here. What I said, what did the Jews want? They wanted to be elevated above the rest of the world. And Paul says, no, God's plan was to make known to the entire world, Jew and Gentile, this mystery. And what is the mystery? What is the hope? Underline it, star it, do whatever you have to. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is it that God is going to make us blameless, faultless, and all of that? It's Christ in us. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see Mike the mess up, Mike the screw up. He doesn't see Mike the one who can't obey, who who struggles to remain faithful. He sees the faithful steward of the eternal covenant of God in Jesus Christ. He sees not Mike's deserving punishment, but he sees Christ's death for Mike. And he doesn't see Mike's hope of resurrection. He sees Christ's resurrection as an efficacious payment. And so Paul says, real simply, here's my ministry in a nutshell. Verse 28, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully within me. Paul says, I'm not going to waste my time talking about a whole bunch of other things. I'm I'm just going to preach Christ. I'm going to tell you about him and about how he fulfills the plan of God, the will of God. And in doing so, you will have completeness and sufficiency. So, in essence, I think what what Paul has shared for us is this, that in this idea of the mystery of the gospel hope, it is the idea that we are left here in the gap so that as we, we interact with it, we recognize... It doesn't make sense. There is no lie. There is no truth in it. It is all a lie. And and the idea that um, as we as we wrestle with the plan of God, uh, we find ultimately the person of the gospel hope to be our final hope. Now the question is: Okay, when it's all said and done, what do we do with this information? Um, I I have kind of. Uh, I, I change it slightly, but what Mark does, you know, on Sundays he talks about our head, hands, and heart. I like to talk about our thinking, our being, and our doing. And our thinking, I'm going to challenge you to do this. For some of you, this may be where you are. I want you to wrestle with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? You woke up this morning. You had a conscious thought. You got up, you petted your good dog, you said hello to your good wife, and you recognized that you were part of something. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I am hoping that since you are in this room that most of you have come to the conclusion there is something rather than nothing because there is a creator, and if there is a creator, I must answer to him, and if I must answer to him, I am going to be found wanting. I hope that's where you have gotten to, but maybe you haven't. But every human being who has ever lived in some way, shape, or form must answer that question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, In your being, if you have come to the the recognition, I, I understand why there's something because... Jesus Christ has created these things to bring glory to God and and to demonstrate that glory, then perhaps another question might be more appropriate, and that is, why is there nothing in the something that satisfies me? 
You live within this world day in and day out, but hopefully you find frustration with it. Like Solomon of old, you say, it's all meaningless. I I go to work, I labor, I, I love, I do all these things, and at the end of the day, it's all worthless. What am I working for? Because, as I said, we cannot make sense of this gap that we live in without the hope of Jesus Christ. Without the concept that there is a plan that has been brought to us by a Creator. So why is there nothing in the something that makes sense to me? In doing, the doing is real easy. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Read the book of Colossians this week. Chapter a day, read the whole book. It's only four chapters. Just sit down and read it. And as you read it, ask this question. God, what do I need to know about you? What do I need to know about myself in this day? So, again, thinking, why is there something rather than nothing being? Why is there nothing in the something? And then finally doing, read the book of Colossians. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Comments, questions, criticisms, critiques. I'm out of C words again. I need to get a thesaurus. What are your thoughts? I've been rambling on for 40 minutes or more, 45 minutes. Some of you are like, I came here to hear about the supremacy of Christ. I'll make a simple comment um, that goes along with what you've been saying. And I, it's a term, it's a little phrase that I just came across again um, called living, <clears throat> living in the tension. Mm. Living in the tension. Yep. And it is so real. Yes. And it is so true. And we, we strive to want to live this normal life, but being in Christ is not normal. Right. It's tension. Yes. And we live with that. And you can't, a lot of people will not want to experience that negative tension. I feel, why do I feel I don't want that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to embrace it. Yeah. We have to embrace the tension. I, I'm glad you said it because that that is so true. You know, there there's a song that I like. Mitch McVicker wrote it. It's called "Kingdom Upside Down," uh, and he goes on and talks about all this fun. You know, my haircut isn't the way that everybody's, is. but we do live in contrast to the society that we live in, and it's it doesn't have to be an odd contrast. It's a philosophical contrast. It doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to walk around in three-piece suits with ties when everybody else is wearing shorts and tank tops. That, that's not the point. It's the philosophical. So, yes, thank you. Other thoughts? Claire's mud. Feel like you understand chapter one more, or are you? You ever... I hadn't heard... I- thought about that idea of the sacred family and I really like that you know as he was addressing the church and even as we look at each other to remember that that that's what the church is we're brothers and sisters in Christ and there's a sacredness because of the origin and because of our commonality in Christ and as the head Hmm. he brings that sacredness to it but you know in a church our size to remember that we're a family And how fitting, again, when you get to chapters 3 and 4, when you get into those familial discussions and imperatives. Now, I, I didn't point this out. That there's, you heard about 10% of my uh, preparation, so you may get other things dropped in here, but we haven't even gotten to an imperative command yet in the book. Bossy word. Everything that, that has been referenced to this point is simply... Paul's just telling you how it is. He hasn't gotten to the point where he's going to tell you what to do. That doesn't come till the first one comes in chapter 2. And Jim referenced it last week. So, um, Any other comments before we go? Let me pray for us. Amen. Father God, we... Uh, Help us to commune with your Spirit in such a way that we interact with this text. God, that you challenge us.
to live in such a way um, that the world around us does see hope that the world around us sees a hope that is not based on oddness but is based on holiness uniqueness God I pray that you will help us to, to know you to understand we will never be able to comprehend your, your greatness and your majesty but I pray that you will help us to apprehend what it is that you are sharing in your word the plan that you are enacting and how you are seeking to reconcile everything back to yourself God help us to live in the tension between grace and glory because of hope help us to live in that place because we know Christ we know that he is before all things and in him all things hold together because we know that he is he is the one who has designed and and will ultimately bring to fruition your plan and so God we rest in you and we ask for your help as we seek to know you as we seek to be transformed by you as we seek to become the sacred family that you want us to be God we are we are grateful for the time that you have given us together we pray these things in the powerful matchless name of Jesus Christ amen Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.